Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1. The sacred history given to us of the apostles working between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. approximately, a few years short of 70 A.D. So we have in the book of Acts, Reformation history. Amen. True Reformation history. That word comes to us from Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10, where we're told that there was a time of Reformation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the old system of worshiping God under Moses was altered and reformed, into the way that we worship today. And that period of time was under the began with John the Baptist, then the Jesus Christ, and then his apostles for that 40-year period of time. Right. And it's in the book of Acts. As we go through that transitional period from Jews to Gentiles, from worship that was still going on in the temple to the temple being destroyed, and churches meeting in houses, schools, synagogues, and other places in order to follow Jesus Christ without... Moses' law. But we have here in Acts 1 an introduction to all that the apostles did in that period of time that the Lord wanted us to know about. Now, they did many more things than is recorded here, but what is recorded is for our learning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and for the benefit of these saints, I pray that you'll sanctify the preaching of your word now that it will be profitable for their souls. Open to us the Word of God and open our hearts that we might not just receive this mentally, but our hearts will rejoice in the truth of the gospel and the true record of those things most surely believed among us as recorded by your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we looked at the first eight verses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We want to try to finish that first chapter, and we will move quickly. Beginning at verse 9, we have another section of the first half of the chapter, and it's verses 9 through 11. After commissioning his apostles, we read, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now they were the ones that had to see him go. And that's really a sad event. But we're the ones that get to see him come back. And that's a good event. We ought to be thankful, and this is the hope of the believer, that the Jesus Christ that took care of the Mary Magdalene's and the Mary's and the Peter's while he was here on earth has gone into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, has given us his Holy Spirit as his personal presence while he's gone, but he is coming back just the way he left. When he left, it was visible, brethren. He had just shown his disciples the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. He is coming back the same way. And brethren, you can study your Bibles and try to show me something of what keeps us, keeps the Lord from coming back tonight. 
There is nothing holding him back except the good pleasure of his own will. We live in a unique time, and I am not speaking as the Apostle Paul. We are living 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul, and one of the great limiting factors in the return of Christ is out of the way. But he's coming back the same way that he left, and that is visibly. There was a coming of Jesus Christ on the destruction of Jerusalem because he called it a coming. He said he would come in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory in bringing judgment on the city of Jerusalem. We can look at the context of various of those statements and know that he came that way because he said he did. So we believe it. That it was a great and notable day of the Lord in bringing judgment on those that had crucified the Lord of glory. But we're not looking for that coming. And the Bible does make that difference. There is a class of futurists that look at the only coming of Jesus Christ is way out in the future. That's what most of us were taught in the past. But there's also a group of preterists that make every single sentence in the New Testament fulfilled at 70 A.D. Not one phrase is left for us. And we are neither. God has kept us out of both ditches. And so we're going to go right down this aisle between these two ditches. I'm sorry to put you in those ditches. We're going to go right down the middle of the road between the ditches. We're not going to see everything fulfilled in 70 A.D., nor stick everything far out in the future. Why can we do that? Because of the Bible. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great hope of the believer. Those men stood there and watched Him ascend up into the clouds. And if you go and read the account in Luke, it says they worshipped him. I mean, these were his beloved disciples, but they worshipped him as he elevated himself with mighty power up into the clouds so that they could see him go. And then those angels came and told them, forget your looking, you've got work that you've got to be doing. He's going to come back just the same way he left. And so they went back to Jerusalem, but the Bible tells us how they went back to Jerusalem. They were rejoicing. Because they had seen their Lord go into heaven, and they knew that the timetable was moving forward for them to be doing His work here on earth. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 describes a coming of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now that is a revelation and a coming of Jesus Christ in which He will bring destruction on those that don't obey Him, and He's going to be glorified in the saints that believe. Now, was that coming on? Was that coming at the destruction of Jerusalem? No, it wasn't. How do we know that? Because we can come down to chapter two, the first couple of verses. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, which He has just mentioned to us, that ye be not soon shaken in mind. Or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, 
as that the day of Christ is at hand. That day of Jesus Christ's coming was not close. It was not at hand. And he said, let no man deceive you by any means, in verse 3. Because there was going to be a lot of deception that the coming was imminent. could happen any time. But it couldn't happen any time. Because there were some things on the prophetic timetable that had to be done first, all of which are fulfilled as of today. Let no man deceive you by any means. And are there deceivers out there? The whole scheme of futurism is deceiving us. The whole scheme of preterism is deceiving us. There is, in this passage, a very definite event that has to take place before Jesus Christ comes back. C.I. Schofield and all the rest claim that Jesus Christ comes first, and then we'll have some guy called an Antichrist, and we'll have something called a seven-year tribulation. That's the popular idea today, but that isn't what the Bible teaches. In fact, right here it says the very opposite, and it says don't let your, don't be lied to. Don't let some man deceive you. Don't let them deceive you by spirit. There's going to be a spirit promoting this false idea of prophecy. Don't be deceived by a word that's preached word. Don't be deceived by a letter. As from us, there were apostolic forgeries being made. There were letters going out with Paul's signature at the bottom that was forged, that was looking like letters from the apostles, declaring that the coming of Christ was imminent, and it wasn't. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And I'm not going to read the rest of this passage. passage. I've taught it before. This man of sin is the line of the popes of Rome. It is so easy to understand this if we read the rest of the Bible. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that out of the Roman Empire would grow a little horn, and that little horn would be unique from all other horns, and it would have eyes like a man, and it would speak blasphemous things, and it would wear out the saints of the Most High God. And it would endure for two, 1,260 years. Right. That's taught clearly in Daniel chapter 7. A little horn coming out of the fourth beast, which was Roman. And exactly what he would do. And for 1,260 years, the saints of the Most High God were worn out by the popes of Rome. They persecuted them and chased them to the far corners of Europe so that they were living in caves and other places to escape his punishment and persecution. You go to Revelation 13, 17, and 18, and you see the same thing, the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, with a new head growing out of it, which was a new form of power. The beast apparently died, then it came back to life in the Roman Catholic Church, and it persecuted the saints of God. That had to come first. Let no man deceive you by any means. That day, the coming of Christ, cannot come, shall not come, except we have a great apostasy first. That means men turning away from the truth and turning to mariolatry, forbidding men to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, sacramental system of salvation, priests on earth that are called fathers. On and on we go. A great apostasy. And it occurred. And then this man of sin would be exalted, who would be sitting in a temple of God. What is the temple of God? 
The church. He would be in a church claiming to be God. Now, is there a man today on earth that sits in a church and claims to be God? The vicar of Christ on earth. Yes, there is indeed. He had 1,260 years. They run from approximately 600 A.D. to approximately 800 A.D. We're not going to deal with all the particulars now because there isn't time. But what we want to look at is the coming of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I'm not here to tell you something that isn't true. He could come soon. There was this huge event in the way and Paul knew about it. Because the Lord reminded Paul by the Holy Spirit that Daniel 7 was hadn't even started yet. But Daniel 7 is finished. As far as its run of time, the 1,260 years. And I hope you'll remember that as we think about the coming of Jesus Christ. A bodily presence of Him returning to earth should be a great source of joy for Christians. Look at, come back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's amazing. How many people today are teaching, first, Jesus comes back and raptures us. They call it the rapture. Not a Bible word, not a Bible concept. But Jesus is going to come back and rapture his saints out. Then there's some antichrist, only for seven years. And there's some tribulation, which they've taken out of Matthew 24. Totally misunderstanding the New Testament. They're saying Jesus comes first, then the antichrist. Paul said, let no man deceive you by any means. That day of Jesus Christ's coming cannot come first. It must come last because the man of sin has to be exposed first. Do you see that? Listen, the whole world out there denies what I'm saying. The whole Christian world. We don't care about the pagan world. But the Christian world denies that. Let no man deceive you. You be established in that fact. The man of sin must come first because he persecutes the church of God. Then Jesus Christ comes and delivers us. But let's read about this coming of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And if Jesus tarries, there's going to be more of us sleeping. And that ought not to be bad news. That's good news. In the Bible, he sleepeth. You know, Mary and Martha and the disciples wanted Jesus to hurry to get to Lazarus. And he said, there's no, we don't need to hurry. He's just asleep. Brethren, can we look at it that way? Can we all believe it that way? Can we all comfort one another that way? If he tarries for a few more years, it's going to happen. But we go to sleep in Jesus. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And for those of you who don't understand yet, that means those who have died. And I I mean that kindly. I don't want you to be ignorant. Because the Lord doesn't call it death sometimes. He wants to remind you that it's just sleeping because it's only for a while. Your your body's taking a nap until he comes and resurrects it. That ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. We should not look like the rest of the world that has no hope at funerals. We should be filled with hope because Jesus, the same way he left, is coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to resurrect those that have 
died before and are laying in the graves, he will pull their bodies out of the dust and refashion them together and give them a glorified body that will be with him forever. Took me a whole sermon to tell you about that. It was called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again. Now do we believe that? Amen. I, didn't he give us many infallible proofs right. in, in Acts chapter 1 so that we would believe that? Didn't Luke begin with that in order to convince Theophilus of the certainty of the things in which he had been instructed? Right. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do... Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that Lord, brethren, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical man, Christ Jesus, who was God in the flesh, that these disciples had walked with, talked with, had grabbed his feet when they saw him in the garden of Gethsemane after his resurrection. That same Jesus is coming back. And yes, you can fight me to grab him first. But he will be there in person for us to see and to know as our Savior. This isn't some spirit. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same way he left, he is coming back and we shall see him with our eyes. Let's not be ignorant about this. And let's not be without hope as the rest of the world is when it comes to a funeral. Let's be filled with hope at a funeral Because someone's soul has just gone to be with their Lord Jesus. And their body only is sleeping. We don't believe in soul sleep. We believe in body sleep. And that only until the resurrection. Because the soul is with Jesus upon death. Oh, we could look at more statements. But let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I hope that we will comfort one another with these words. There were some in the church at Thessalonica that had already died. They were already asleep. And that's why Paul said, let's not be ignorant about this matter. They were asleep in Jesus, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Let's remember that. Because brethren, as I said, if the Lord Jesus tarries, it's going to happen here. And let's be prepared to comfort one another completely in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His imminent return. That is Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, they were watching, he stood there, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. They watched him go up into the clouds, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels, which told them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And Luke tells us they worshipped him as he went up, and they returned with great joy to Jerusalem. Now we take up the next three verses. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. 
Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. How far was the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem? A Sabbath day's journey. How long is a Sabbath day's journey? John chapter 11 and verse 18, I believe it is, tells us it's about two miles. It was short because the Jews weren't allowed to walk very far on the Sabbath day. Now that isn't speculation from some Bible dictionary. That isn't even speculation from the Bible. That's just reading over in John eleven eighteen where it says, Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Mount, the Mount of Olives was at Bethany. You can find it in about five different places in the Gospel accounts. That's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Bethany and the Mount of Olives were at the same place. It's a little village on the side of the Mount of Olives. Verse 13, And when they were come in, here are the eleven. They've witnessed the Lord returning to heaven. He's commissioned them to be his apostles and to preach the gospel worldwide. When they were come in, they went into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Elpheus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. There we have the list of names given so that we can know for sure. Remember, Luke's a man of detail. He's a medical doctor. He gives Theophilus the list of names that he can confirm from the other gospel accounts that they're all there, all accounted for, no changes, except one Judas Iscariot is missing. I want us to notice in the 14th verse that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. I don't want to race through the, gospel, the, through the book of Acts in such a way that we don't pick up the practical message for us. And one of those practical messages is for God to send his spirit and accomplish extraordinary things with ordinary people and to bless them abundantly. Here is, the, is some root ingredients. Right. right here in the 14th verse. These all continued. They weren't spastic. They weren't up and down. They weren't hot for a while, cold for a while. They continued with one accord. There was unity. There was not division. They weren't divided, as we sang earlier tonight with onward Christian soldiers. They had one mind, one heart, one spirit, one purpose, one faith, one baptism. There wasn't division. One accord. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. We do not pray enough yet. We do not supplicate enough yet. We are not true saints of God yet. We can be better, and we must be better. Amen. True saints of God, where God blesses them and sends His Spirit and does great things for them, they are people of prayer. We are not talking about five minutes. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Do you remember last Sunday I had occasion to mention a widow indeed? 1 Timothy 5.5 5. A widow indeed was a woman who trusted in God and continued day and night in prayers and supplications. Day and night in 1 Timothy 5.5 5. We need to pray more. If we want God's blessing on our church for our prayers to be answered 
and for us to grow spiritually. And by spiritually, I mean a closer communion with God, greater faith, more hope, comfort in the face of any adversity. We have to spend more time in prayer. Satan will bring up every excuse in the world to keep you from prayer, including reading the Bible. Anything to keep you from prayer. We have got to spend more time in prayer. I I read this, and I read through chapter 2 and 4 and 5 and see the blessings uh, that fell on this early church, and they were always praying. Why did Paul have to give himself to prayer and the Word of God? He was the Apostle Paul. Did he have any shortage of knowledge? No. No. Did he have any shortage of a discernment of spirits? No. No. Tongues. But he didn't, those apostles, Peter and the, and the rest of them, did not want to be serving widows' tables so that they could spend more time praying. Right. It doesn't even say preaching. Now, they did serve with the Word of God, but they wanted more time for prayer. And the devil will deceive us into everything, keeping us too distracted to pray. You have too much going on in your life, you're too tired. I'll read. I'll go over an outline. I'll have devotions with the kids. All of those are false substitutes for the men of this church and the women. Because remember what the verse said. Do you even need to look down? It said the women were right there with the apostles. Right. Now, I like to encourage women whenever I can. But that verse right there, Acts 1.14, should encourage women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other women were continuing with one accord with the apostles. They were praying at an apostolic level with the apostles. And the Lord blessed that church. We must pray more. I'll trust the Lord to tell you what that verse means. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Jesus had brothers. Don't you ever doubt it for a minute. Jesus had lots of brothers. Their names are given to us in the Bible. There was a James. There was a Joseph. There was a Judas. There was a Simeon. And yes, they were his true brothers. They weren't his cousins. They weren't his cousins German. They weren't anything that you want to think about. They were his brothers because I can go to the Psalms and prove to you that they were his mother's children. Right. Now you think about that for a minute if that's deep for you, but they were his brothers. And they weren't converted initially. You can go find in the Gospel of John where they didn't believe initially. But later they did. And here they are. And they're with his, they're with his mother. And they're with other women And this group of people together prayed, prayed. My brothers and my sisters, we must pray more. I don't care how much you pray. We need to pray more. Because I don't think we're even close to the pattern that we find in the book of Acts. And I'm going to run on this word so many times you're going to get... Not if your heart's in the right place. We need to be people of prayer. Why aren't our prayer requests being answered? Because the Lord knows we're cheating Him on our prayer time. We're not praying enough. We need to pray more. All of us. I want to be pray much more. There is a million things that Satan uses to keep us from prayer. There's always an... I, listen, I can talk about it for my... There's always an outline. There's always a Bible question to answer. There's always a book to read. There's always another chapter to read in the Bible. But none of that is as good as prayer. 
We have no idea what we can accomplish with more prayer. I mean supplicating the Lord. Supplicating is an earnest entreaty. It's begging and beseeching Him. It's just another way of expressing the same thing as prayer. Prayer is addressing God. It's simple. Supplicating is begging and beseeching Him with entreaties. And we need to be doing more of it. But here's what they were doing. And brethren, the Lord poured out on this church the kind of blessings we want. I mean, they were blessed abundantly. Women in the church have important roles and they can pray. And you say, well, if I'm praying, no one will ever see me. Please help, please help me and say that there's no one in here that has a thought that way. A woman praying in her closet when she has time during the day can accomplish so much for this church. And if you're worried about being seen, I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ sees Amen. and he will reward openly. Matthew chapter 6, it's repeated three times. When he sees in private, he'll reward openly. A woman can do great things for this assembly and for everyone in it by laboring in prayer and supplications as these women did. They got rid of their carnal differences. They were of one mind. This was a one mind church and a praying church and a supplicating church. And we need more of that. And we're going to have more of it, the Lord willing. Spiritual saints who are fighting the real battle. Remember Ephesians 6? Give no place to the devil. Five sermons, remember? Or is it gone? The way of all flesh. Ephesians 6. We take, we put on the spiritual armor because we're in a spiritual battle. Not a physical battle. Not an outline battle. Not even a Bible battle. I mean, this is the sword of the Spirit, but we're only to use it after we have praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit for all saints. Ephesians 6.18. Let's remember that as we go through this history, we're going to see verses like verse 14 over and over again to see the character of these saints in the early church. This wasn't praying for five minutes. When Peter was in prison over in Acts chapter 12, it's going to tell us that they prayed without ceasing. They had a prayer meeting going 24 hours a day while Peter was in prison. When he got out in the middle of the night, sometime 3 o'clock or sometime, I can't even recall what it was right now, but he knew where to go, and when he went there, were they sleeping? They had a prayer meeting going full blast. Now, they didn't have much faith, but they were praying, and they were surprised that Peter was at the gate trying to get in, but they were praying for him, and we need to be like that. Let's come now to the second section of... Acts chapter 1, and that's the first business meeting of the early church, which is called by Peter to replace Judas. I read in verse 15, and in those days, and brethren, there weren't very many days. What does the word Pentecost mean? It's 50. 50 days after Passover. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. Now Jesus died at Passover. How long was he in the tomb? Three. How long did he show himself to his disciples? Forty. How many days do we have left? Seven. Did Jesus mean it when he said, I'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost not many days hence? Amen. A week. And in those days, what days are we talking about? The seven days we've got left. Right. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Who stood up? Peter. 
You mean the same Peter that went out and wept bitterly? Amen. It's comforting, brethren. I could stop right there. I could stop right there with, with that verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. I've had great blessings in the last few weeks just looking at Acts 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up. Right. Do you know why he stood up? Because Jesus Christ said, Simon, Satan hath desired thee to sift thee like wheat. But I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Wow. Brethren, nothing. You can never do anything so bad that God can't rescue you and save you and pray for you and you be converted so you can be useful to him. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Because he turned after that last denial and saw the Lord Jesus Christ, was reminded of everything Jesus had said of him, and that he had denied his Lord. But Jesus appeared to him, delivered him. Jesus took, in John chapter 21, Peter's out of, Peter says, I go a-fishing. And so Peter goes a-fishing. Jesus is standing on the shore. They're out there fishing and didn't take a thing. And Jesus says, children, do you have any meat? Jesus and the disciples said, no, we haven't caught anything. Try the right-hand side. So Peter throws his net over the right-hand side of the boat. He's been fishing off the left all night. Throws it over the right. The the net is full of fish so that they can't draw it in. And John whispers to him, that's got to be the Lord. Peter grabs his coat. Peter grabs his coat, dives into that water, and heads for shore. Couldn't wait to go in a boat. And they drew that net to shore, 153 great fishes. And they come to shore, and there's already fish cooking there on a fire that somehow appeared with fish and bread that Jesus Christ had for them. But brethren, as they ate that meal there together, Jesus said, Simon, lovest thou me? And Peter said, yea, Lord, I love thee. And Jesus said again, Simon, lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, I love thee. Simon, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Peter wasn't grieved that he asked him with some different Greek word, as the little clowns like to play. It says exactly, Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. And it only takes a child to figure out why the third time was so significant. Because he had denied the Lord three times. And so the third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, lovest thou me? Lord, thou knowest all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Here he is feeding his sheep. Don't you ever be discouraged about sin in your life. There's a Jesus Christ, a Savior, who's looking for you. Don't hide from him. Run to him and repent. And he'll give you mercy and restore your soul. And then you can stand up in the midst of the disciples and feed his sheep. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15. And then Luke, with all of his details, wanting us not to miss anything, or Theophilus not to miss anything, tells that the number of names together were about 120. Peter stands up and he says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, 
which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now the rest of Peter's words, my brethren, are in verse, is in verse 20. Verses 18 and 19 are Luke's narrative that he sticks in here that you've got to be careful with. Trust me, and we'll keep reading down and you'll see it. Verses 16, 17, then 20 are Peter's words. Men and brethren, this scripture, so we need a scripture, because he says this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Not needs to be fulfilled, but it says must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishop prick let another take. Peter is all of a sudden with understanding from the Holy Spirit going back into the Psalms and pulling out of them that Judas was going to die, it was prophesied, he was going to die so that his habitation would be desolate, no man would dwell therein because the violent death he would suffer, and his bishopric or his office would be left vacant. Amen. And because those words were in the Psalms, they had to be fulfilled. And Peter, trusting in the sovereignty of God and by the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, says those verses need to be have been fulfilled. And so we have some work to do. We need to fill that bishop prick again. We need to fill that office again. Now in, in the middle, in verses 18 and 19, we have Luke giving Theophilus a little background. Let me read it and you'll see it, that it's Luke writing and not Peter speaking. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Peter would not have to say that to the 120 the 120 would know that intimately. How many days ago would it have been? 40, 43, 44, 45. He didn't need to say that to them. They all knew it. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Amen. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. In insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. Amen. The first part of verse 19, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Peter would not have used that past tense verb was if he was saying these words. This is Luke writing this 40, 30, 40 years later at the end of his career from Rome when he writes Theophilus, the book of Acts, all 28 chapters. He's, he's telling Theophilus, way back, 40 years ago, everyone in Jerusalem knew about this event. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Peter would not have used those words. He might have said, it is known, but they all knew that. Right. How, why did he have to tell men who lived in Jerusalem that they knew about Judas? These are not the words of Peter. These are the words of Luke to Theophilus, giving Theophilus a little background about Judas. Let's, let's go back to Peter's words in verse 16. 
Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Peter begins right off the bat by admitting the sovereignty of God, that God and his government of the universe is able to forecast and predestinate and determine what men are going to do. And one of them was Iscariot, the son of perdition. Jesus said of him, The Son of Man goeth, as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for that man that he had not been born. I want to tell you something about the God of heaven that you won't find outside this room. If it had been better for that man that he had not been born, why was he born? Absolutely. For the glory of God. That is a sovereign God. Amen. Do you follow that? Amen. If Jesus knew the judgment of that man was going to be so great, it had been better for that man that he hadn't been born, then why was he born? Because God in his sovereign purpose, and according to the eternal counsel of his own will, purposed that that man Judas would glorify him by fulfilling his purpose and then receiving judgment for his wickedness. That is the God that we have to deal with. He is not a sugar daddy in the sky. He is not an old man with white hair hanging off the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. He is a sovereign God that can make on his spinning wheel a vessel of wrath if he wants to. And he can make vessels of mercy prepared before and to glory. And it leaves us with one thing. Thank you, Lord, for Amen. saving my soul. Amen. Amen. Judas was conceived, covered in the womb of his mother for nine months, preserved at childbirth, seen through all childhood diseases, kept safe all of his life in order to crucify, in order to betray the Lord of glory and then suffer horribly for it. He was used by Satan, and Jesus never prayed for him. Satan sifted Peter, but Jesus prayed for Peter so that Peter was delivered. Brethren, you better fly to the feet of Jesus Christ and beg for him to make intercession for your soul. The difference is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And we're going to get to the difference in a second. Men and brethren... This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. That's what we believe about the Bible, isn't it? When we read a sentence in the Bible, what is it? It's the Holy Ghost speaking by another man. We may call David and Peter and others the writers of scripture, but the author, the source, the origin of the words is the Holy Ghost. He spake before. What does he mean before? He means a thousand years before, a long time ago, before. David wrote down what Judas was going to do, which was guide to them that took Jesus. And then he says, verse 17, here's the sovereignty of God again. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Peter, in those two verses, is teaching the sovereignty of God in the matter concerning Judas. It was not a mistake. Someone didn't slip in unawares. They weren't picked by lot so that somebody passed through the committee unbeknownst to the committee, and was a false professor, Jesus chose all twelve, and he knew that one of them was a devil. The Bible tells us that 
in numerous places. He was numbered with us. He received his ministry the same way we received ours, by the divine call of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was not mistaken. Jesus Christ spent three and a half years with a man that he knew was going to sell him out for the price of a cheap slave. And I want to tell you something, brethren. I don't know if this blesses your heart or not, but at the Last Supper, and I mentioned it this morning, at the Last Supper, when all the disciples are asking him, is it I? Is it I? Even Judas asked him, is it I? And Jesus said, you got it. And then he said, what thou doest, do quickly. You want a hero? You want someone to love and adore? You want a lover for your soul? It's a Jesus Christ that can sit there and know that he is going to leave that room to go get that angry mob to take him in the Garden of Gethsemane and take him to that false pretense of a trial and then have him crucified on the cross of Calvary. And he says, go do it quickly. Because it was known throughout the whole city what that man had done and what a violent death he had suffered. It told us that, it told us that in verse 19. And his bishop prick let another take. Now let's look at verses 18 and 19, which are Luke's words to Theophilus. It tells us, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. If you go read, the, the only other account is Matthew 27. It says that Judas, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, repented. And he went and took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw them at the high priest and said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to that. And then he went out and hung himself. That's what Matthew 27 tells us. And then they looked at the money and they said, well, we can't put this in the treasury. That wouldn't be a holy thing to do because it's the price of blood. And so they went and bought the field where he had dashed himself in order to bury strangers thereon in the future. They purchased some some further public cemetery for strangers that would die in Jerusalem where he had died. Now, we come to this 18th verse, and it says, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. It is not uncommon for us to say that a man has done something when someone else does it by his means. It was Judas's 30 pieces of silver that bought it. They just bought it on his behalf because he was dead. He may have even told them before he, when he threw the money to them, where he was going and what field he was going to hang himself in. We don't know that. All I know is this. He, he threw the 30 pieces of silver to the priests. They bought the property for him, but it was for him because this text tells me that he purchased the field. And we use speech like that ourselves. Bill Gates doesn't do very much for Microsoft. But usually when you're talking about Microsoft, people will say, Bill Gates did this, or Bill Gates did that. And he may not have even known that it was happening. But he's responsible for it's happening, and he paid for it to happen. And it's part of his overall strategic... Forget it, you all understand that. But this is the dilemmas that people will raise in the Word of God to try to discredit it. And it holds no water. This man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Bible skeptics come along and say, did he hang himself, or did his bowels gush out? Well, brethren, I believe both, because the Bible says both. If you give yourself enough rope, and you give yourself enough height, 
and you dive headfirst, which is what headlong means, all sorts of things can happen when you get to the end of that rope. You'll not only hang yourself in the first nanosecond because it's going to break your neck, but your bowels can gush out also. That's without even hitting anything. Well, now, let's suppose that you hit something after you hung yourself. You could have hit the ground. You could have hit a rock. You could have hit a tree. You could have hung there for a while and distended your abdomen until it burst open. No problem to me at all. I believe the word of God. Absolutely believe it completely. He went out and hung himself. Do you know what that means? He tied something around his neck and he dove head first. Listen, brethren, that is not like these little timid ones that we've heard about that stand in a chair and put something around their neck and tie it to the rafters and then kick the chair away. This man was being tormented. He went and dove headlong. And both are true about what happened to him. He hung himself, and he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out, and everyone knew about it because it was such a wild story about what had happened. Let me talk about Judas for a minute. The Bible tells us that he repented. There's two kinds of repentance, brethren. There's ungodly repentance and there's godly repentance. And God doesn't accept the, the repentance of this world. Do you remember over in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel were told that they're going to all die in the wilderness because they wouldn't take the land of Canaan? Amen. They believed the ten spies that the, that the land was too dangerous. And so God said, I'm going to kill all of you wandering in circles in the land of, in the wilderness. Do you know what they did? They said, we have sinned and we're going to go up and take the land. And Moses said, I'm not going with you. They said the words, we have sinned. Those words are not enough. You've got to humble yourself before God and do what he says. Now they could have said, we have sinned for 40 years and the Lord may have had mercy on them. But he wasn't going to have it the way they tried to do it. They said, we have sinned and then disregarded what he said. Judas. He repented. Do you know what he should have done? He should have run to the Son of God. Instead, he went out and committed murder. Now, how do you call that godly repentance? The Bible in 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that godly repentance clears you. You have vehement zeal and desire to rectify the situation. He did not try to rectify anything. You can say what you want about suicide. It's murder. Where does the Bible tell you to go commit suicide when you're guilty of a sin? Peter obtained forgiveness. He went out and wept bitterly. He was very sorry for what he had done. But he didn't forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. When he heard news from Mary that that stone was rolled away and Jesus was no longer in the tomb, what did he do? He ran. And he wished he was his family. I know what he was thinking on the way there. That he hadn't been training longer so that he could have beat John there. But I'll tell you, John got there and stopped and looked in and Peter didn't slow down. Peter went right on inside and the Bible tells us that about him. He wanted to see if his Lord was gone. Amen. Judas did not do that. Rather than seeking Christ's forgiveness, where does he go? Back to his co-conspirators. And he says, I betrayed the innocent blood. Now, brethren, I want to tell you something about false religion. 
If you want to put your trust in false religion when you need them, they're not going to be there for you because they have nothing to offer. He went back to false religion and said, I have sinned. I betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You take care of that. Now, isn't that, what was their title? The men that said that. The chief priests. Was their job to comfort people and help them with their sins. I think that's the job of a priest. Did they know Judas? Yes. They were his co-conspirators. But did they help him? No. And he was tormented. But he was tormented by Satan. He was not tormented like Peter was tormented. Peter was tormented by the Spirit of God with his new man grieving over what he had done. This man was tormented by Satan and he went out and committed suicide diving head first. Satan was able to get Judas up from that table and take him out of that room to go get the angry mob to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And moments later, when Satan's work is done, does Satan have any more use for Judas? No. No. But to take his soul to hell. That is the enemy that we're dealing with. But Jesus Christ has defeated him. Satan used Judas to get his work done And as soon as the work was done, he had no more regard for Judas. He tormented him into horrible, into a horrible death. Jesus did not pray for Judas. When Jesus prayed to his father, he said, I have lost none of those men that you gave me except the son of perdition, which was by the decree of God. Do not wonder if Judas was saved. He was called the son of perdition, which is the son of judgment. He was called a devil. And in Psalm 109, there's 20 verses that tell us when his sins come up before God, every single one of them will be remembered. You don't have to wonder. The Bible answers it in Psalm 109. False religion. They had 30 pieces of silver in their hands. And they said, oh, we're we're too holy and noble to put these 30 pieces of silver into our treasury because they were used to purchase the life of a man. So we're going to have to go buy this field worried about the use of their 30 pieces of silver, but not worried that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Is that is the most profane hypocrisy in the entire Bible. Uh, Maybe there's other examples worse, but I don't know where they are. They're looking at 30 pieces of silver making very conscientious Bible decisions from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. They're drawing an inference from verses that you are not to bring the price of a whore or the price of a dog into the temple of the Lord. They were drawing an inference from that, that this money should not go into the treasury. And yet they didn't care about the murder being perpetrated a few feet away of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you understand down through verse 20. Verses 15 and 16 is Peter addressing the sovereignty of God in the matter of Judas. And then the the quotation from the Psalms in verse 20, that they needed to fill that office which he had left vacant. And then Luke had told Theophilus some more things about his death in verses 18 and 19. So now we come to verse 21 where Peter is drawing a conclusion 
from the Psalms. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. They knew the qualifications for an apostle. Two things. One, they had seen everything Jesus did. From, jo- from his baptism by John to his ascension. Notice how carefully it's worded here. It's very carefully worded. The qualification to be an apostle was that they have had to have accompanied the other apostles the whole time that Jesus went in and out among the apostles, starting with the baptism of John unto the day that he was taken up from us, which was just a few days ago, must one be ordained. That's because God's going to do the ordination. They're going to appoint some candidates that meet those qualifications. Do you follow? Which they did. There there were men beyond the twelve that had followed the Lord Jesus Christ from the very first day. They were called disciples. You'll see them in the Bible referenced as disciples. Sometimes the apostles are called disciples, but disciples are never called apostles. And you'll see this larger group that was around Jesus called disciples. And they followed him from the very beginning. And so from that group, and they were part of the 120, the, the 11 apostles looked among them and found out which ones. Now remember, you were gone for six months because you had to go to, to Rome to see about your mother's inheritance, you know, whatever. They went through the 120 until they came up with two that met these qualifications. First qualification was they saw everything Jesus did so that he could be a witness with us of his resurrection, the last part of verse 22. Being an eyewitness of Jesus after his resurrection is key. Everywhere you find apostles defined, that is always the number one factor that they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul could say, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. In both places. And they appointed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, Joseph Justice, and Matthias. We have two men that they found of the 120 that had three and a half years been with the other apostles and seen everything that Jesus did until the day that he was taken up into heaven. And they prayed. Here they go praying again. And said, Thou, Lord which knowest the hearts of all men. No preference here. I'm sure there were friends in this group that liked Matthias, and there were other friends that liked Joseph. But they didn't care about that. They wanted the God that was able to look at all the sons of Jesse and check them off and rule them out one by one from the eldest, who was a very good-looking stud. If you'll go back there and read it in 1 Samuel chapter 16, all the way down to that little shepherd boy David. Because as Samuel explained... The Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And these people pray so wisely. If we can pray according to the scriptures, we know that we're praying according to the will of God. Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. They gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. 
and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Amen. Now, don't go out of here tonight and try doing lots for something about which restaurant you're going to go to to eat supper. The Lord doesn't work that way, and he's not going to take it kindly that you're being so foolish about something so serious. But even the New Testament, and we're going to see lots again, but this here is the blessing of God because he honors sober lots by sober people when they don't have an alternative. They were pushed, put into a predicament where they had more than one man qualified from this pool of 120, but they wanted the Lord to choose the one that would be his so that he would be as much the Lord's choice as the other 11 were by God's own choice. This is Acts chapter 1. Brethren, this is the building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ accomplished with his chosen men. They were ordinary men. They were fishermen. When they opened their mouths in public, they were not polished. They were not educated. They were not trained. But do you know what men could notice by when they spoke? That they had been with Jesus. I heard that in the back. That they had been with Jesus. Jesus. I hope that as we read a chapter like Acts 1, and we go through this book, that the overriding theme will be for us to be like these saints. The Lord has pulled this information out and inspired and preserved it for us, for us to see what we should see. There were lots of other churches that we're not told about. We're not going to read much about Peter. Peter's going to quickly go aside, and it's going to be Paul. And most of the apostles we don't read anything about. About eight of them, you just saw the last reference to them in the Acts of the Apostles. But they were off doing the work of God. In obscurity, oh, they were accomplishing great things, but they only cared about one judge and one Lord who had called them to their work, and that's the Lord Jesus. But for the man that God does bring up to show us, like Peter in these first chapters, like Judas in a few verses, we want to look at those and see how we want to pattern our lives to be like this early church. And if I can leave you with that 14th verse to me, that's the key verse for us. With one accord, they continued with women in prayer and supplication. Brethren, let's be a church that is doing that. May the Lord bless us as we do it.